Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I had some very, very good mentors and role models at school. I had a good peer group and I was able to experience things that I, I don't think every child's able to to experience. Every racing driver that gets in the car has got fear. You've just got to battle, an ongoing mental battle to try and block that out. I've had friends that have died in accidents, uh, quite a few friends that have died in accidents. So you overcame the physical disabilities yeah. from, from the crash. Yes. But then you say it got harder. I was almost stepping into a void of panic total unknown why, why was that necessary it's just closure for me to know i can to know i did i didn't tell my mum or my wife um they know now they know now <laughs> <laughs> um it's just a little bit about me isn't it and and that's what makes me tick just i need to sometimes put things to bed Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. I'm Raphael Rowe, your host. This podcast focuses on the theme of second chance, exploring who deserves it, who has the authority to grant it, and what it means. We speak with people from diverse backgrounds, including those who have been given second chances and those who some might argue don't deserve them. Joining me today is Tom Gaymore, an extraordinary person who's demonstrated unwavering determination in the face of adversity from his early days behind the wheel to a career-ending injury that left him with a broken back. Tom has battled through physical and mental challenges to rekindle his love for motorsport. Today, he shares his passion for the sport with the world through his exceptional broadcasting and commentating skills. Tom's experience taught him much about himself and the psychological struggle drivers encounter on the track. He's witnessed the loss of friends in the sport and understands the risks and rewards of pursuing speed and thrill. Tom opens up about moments of fear 
and uncertainty and how he found a new purpose by swapping his steering wheel for a microphone. Tom also serves as an ambassador for Divert London, where he collaborates with the Metropolitan Police Custody Programme to provide early intervention and training opportunities for at-risk youth. He's a champion for individuals who may not have had the chance otherwise and is committed to breaking the stigma associated with the criminal justice system. Tom, we first met at the Clink in Brixton. Actually, I should say we first met at Brixton Prison, but just for the record, it wasn't because <laughs> we were both doing time. They've got a, a really flash little restaurant down there, haven't they, where outsiders or members of the public can go in and have a meal. And we met to look at the kind of work that we do for charities. When we were sitting there and we were sort of introducing ourselves, you talked a little bit about yourself, which was really surprising to me, not that I was expecting anything in particular, um, but you have such a fascinating story. So let's start with when you were a young man or a young boy, a teenager, you wanted to become a racer, a car racer. Tell me a little bit about that. Where did that come from? Where did that idea come from? Why racing and not football or tennis? It's a good question, actually. I think I wanted to be involved in sport. I grew up around rugby and cricket. I didn't have any introductions into motorsport. It's a sport that if you want to get involved in, how do you get involved in motorsport? You know, if you're playing rugby or cricket, you can play at school if you're lucky. There's extracurricular stuff going on at the weekends if you know some parents they'll introduce you to the local clubs and there's there's a natural pathway into those sports whereas motorsport you don't really have that so I was incredibly fortunate through my granddad to be introduced to the sport I went to Silverstone it's one of those situations that you remember that resonates with you forever I've got a handful of those as, as a child and I'm sure you have and it's the the sound the sight the smell everything about motorsport for me was was special and that day stayed with me i was going to lots of birthday parties as you do and one or two of those were karting parties i was introduced to the sport then through through that facet and never looked back i didn't really think i was going to end up in the sport because it's such a such a long journey and and, and the jump from your arrive and drive into actually national European world championships is, is is such a big step that it's a million miles away from reality. But slowly I chipped away. I went away to boarding school. I fell out with all the cricket masters and didn't want to play cricket <laughs> and wanted to spend my weekends away racing. And luckily I had some really supportive parents. Can you remember the first time you got inside, apart from the go-karts that run around the racetrack, go-kart track, can you remember the first time you got inside a car that went faster than a go-kart? Well, the, the, the carts are quick, you know, and even now that a, a go-kart sort of a KZ machine, sort of 10 to 60, 80 miles an hour, you're looking at speeds quicker than the Formula One car. You know, I'm thinking under. of the kind of go-karts that I get <laughs> yeah. in that do like 20 yeah. miles, probably less yeah. than 20 miles yeah. an hour and you still think you're going fast, but you're no. talking about super fast yeah. go-karts. even the six-year-olds are doing over 60 miles an hour. Wow. And you're not strapped in. Then you progress, like I said, KZ right at the top of the tree. What's a KZ? At, it's a gearbox cart. So you'll have a hand clutch, you'll have a, a shifter, you'll have six-speed box and you'll go up the gears and down the gears and... 
you're racing on outdoor circuits probably about a thousand meters long so if you think in athletics tracks 400 meters you're probably looking at double the length of that so big venues and they'll do speeds of up to 110 miles now and you might be you know the junior kz you're looking at 13 years of age so you've got kids that are not strapped in that are driving very high performance machines at a very young age and then you almost progress into cars and it actually slows down a bit because the transition from cars to from carts to cars is is very different i always use the analogy rugby league and rugby union if you're mm. familiar with those two sports they both chase an egg around but they're very different disciplines and carting to cars is like that you've got to learn how to cope with the weight transfer aero and various different other mechanical aids in terms of grip so it's it's different and it slows down a bit and the level of professionalism might not quite be what you're used to because world championship karting you'll have thirty thousand people at the events you know the the teams are spending up to two hundred and fifty thousand pounds per entry so if you've got 10 carts in your awning it, there's about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds going into each and every one of those entries over a course of a year so it, it's it's big money it's big business it's very professional looks like a formula one environment and when you step away from cars you, you might be at brands hatch racing in formula ford with a with a hot dog and a burger stand and <laughs> and uh you know bacon sign at six in the morning to keep you going and it's pouring with rain and your car's stuck in the car park when you want to go home <laughs> so it's not quite as glamorous but not you know taking any away, anything away from brands when but. did you first compete then because you went on to compete i take it yes yeah so I was competing in Urine Cart Club. Um, Sandown Park was my local venue. I'm Surrey born and bred. Well, Middlesex born and bred, so sort of popping out into Surrey, but you don't have many venues in Middlesex. So so you're sort of moving across from Surrey to Kent, and then you'll move nationally if you progress into a national championship, but I wasn't quite at that level. And so I'd say about 12, 12 years of age, and you're competing every month against the same people around two or three different circuits around the southeast. So Sandown Park, Butmore Park in Kent. Fond memories of my mum and dad getting up on a Saturday and Sunday morning, your McDonald's drive through bacon and egg McMuffin <laughs> on the way. And uh, and spending the day at a cart circuit, it's pretty special. And when we talk about a cart circuit, were you in, I, I, the only way I can describe it is go-kart. So was, is that what you were competing in, a go-kart type yeah. moto vehicle of yes. some kind? Yeah, so you have a team that runs it. Some people are run by their parents and they might have like a motorhome, a caravan, that kind of stuff with a van that, that runs the carts. I was... Yeah, if you looked at my dad and his ability to do DIY, he was nowhere near going to be able to <laughs> take me racing. So I had a team running running me and, and we used to, Andrew Crichton, in fact, I'm still in touch with him now. I blame him. I say you, you spend your whole young life trying to get into motorsport and your whole adult life trying to get out of it. But, you know, I blame <laughs> him for uh, for where I'm at now and we still keep in touch. He's up in Anglesey. But yeah, fond memories. It was fun back then. You know, you're doing it for all the right reasons. It's so different to, to what other teenagers are doing when you're 12, 13, traveling around the Southeast, racing high performance machines, being driven by a goal, a dream having those ambitions starting to really sort of hatch and be born and starting to to gain traction. You know, you look back at those early days and I wish, you know, we talked about various different things at the clink as, as a young kid, that was like a goldmine effect for me and, and environment. And I wish, 
you know, more kids were were able to have that. And, and, and why do you think they're that. not? Why do you think most kids are not exposed to that? Is it because you have to have a love for that sport to get into it like you did? Or is it just lack of opportunity? Yeah, I think it's lack of opportunity. You know, you are very much beholden to your circumstances. And I was very, very fortunate to, to be born and brought up in the environment that, you know, I had a loving family and not everybody has that uh, environment. And I had some very, very good mentors and role models at school. I had a good peer group and I was able to experience things that I, I don't think every child's able to to experience. And certainly with, with my experience now with Divert and working with young adults in and around the, the criminal justice system, certainly their early lives are very chaotic, very traumatic. And I don't think every kid's on the same start line. Mm. That's what I say. Mm. It's It's not about paving a pathway for people and or giving them the direction that you feel is right for them. It's just about getting people on, on the same start line so people can pick and choose what, what direction they want to go in, what, where their passions lie, go down pathways that, that they really believe in and, and, and want to experience. But not everyone is on that start line. And if you don't get onto that start line, it, it's very, very difficult then to, to even imagine what some of those pathways or what some of those directions look like. And, and you started at 12 years old. Yes. We were competing at 12. Where did it take you? Where, where did your career in motorsport take you? I went to boarding school. Don't judge me. And uh, <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> I think boarding school was, was a great experience. You, you grow up very quickly. There's a, a real pressure put on your shoulders. You, you've got to fight to survive. You've got to have the autonomy. That very much put me in a good place for moving to France when I was 16, 17. So I moved to France, lived in Le Mans. So a bit like a young football player might play for a northern club, a southern club, a European club, wherever you are, you're going to to go and live nearby. And so I was racing for Elf and Renault in Le Mans, racing in Renault Campus, which was run by Henri Pescarola, who's a French legend in Le Mans. He's won Le Mans sort of five times, maybe seven times, no, five times. I've probably given him, uh, done him an injustice there. I should know my stats. But <laughs> um, but yeah, La Filière was a wonderful environment. And to then take what I'd learned at boarding school to then really break into the, the outside world, it was quite challenging. I had to learn a language. And I had to learn it fast, not just to, to be in and around the racing team, but we were sent to school. So I had to learn in French. And I don't think they quite knew what to do with us. So they just sort of sent us to the local lycée. So you're trying to get your head around maths and geography in your own language. <laughs> and then you're now trying to do it in another language. I think the first girl I asked out on a date brought her boyfriend. So that didn't go particularly <laughs> well. So I, I thought then I, I very much needed to to learn the language and uh, and try and survive. Do you get paid at that young age no. for, for doing what you're doing? It's just the love of the sport, financing it yourself yeah. for your parents and any job you might have. Yes, you don't get paid, but you get given money to survive, essentially. So it's, it, it's very much you're, an apprenticeship, if you like. So you are... And if you're not in the environment that I was in where Re Renault and Elf are looking after you, you're raising sponsorship, you've got investment and you raise a bit on the side to, to try and live. So you might have 20 grand on the side, you're living at home, that 20 grand gets you your gym membership, you travel, <laughs> mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. it's not about you're doing it for all the right reasons at that age and, you know, you don't look 
back really and it's it's an interesting transition because you know if i sort of fast forward to the end of my career where i broke my back and and sort of fell out of the sport and didn't have any qualifications all your friends have gone through further education have now jobs they're sort of five years into a career they've got decent earning capacity and, and you you've sort of lived the last eight nine ten years with, with a limited earning capacity because you haven't made it in the sport yet and well then, how far did you go uh, how far before you got to that point where your career ended which you can talk about but how far did you go in your career well the thing is with with motorsport as, as i said at the beginning it's a it, it's very misunderstood it's it's, it's very opaque it, it lacks transparency and there's racing drivers that are pushing into formula one in their first year maybe not even earning money you know they're taking money for whether or not that sponsorship or investment or whatever it is they will be paid out of that and it'll be a limited amount it's not until they get their first professional deal and that might not come until a couple of years into their formula one career or their le mans sports car career or whatever it is so you actually are in a very fickle environment it's almost you know i speak to various actors or people working in tv you know mm. you might earn a pittance all the way through but you're doing something that mm. you love mm. and, and you're trying to to be that one percent that that actually can make mm. a career out of it and, and motorsports like that you know and so although i progressed up the ladder and i i was sort of a few steps away from formula one you still have no earning capacity you still have no insurance you still have no nothing to fall back on if it all goes wrong you didn't expect it to go wrong but it no. did go wrong yes yeah yeah you don't when you're young you you don't think that you're ever going to be in the situation that i was going to be in and certainly although you're exposed to danger i've had friends that have died in accidents uh, quite a few friends that have died in accidents a lot of people that have broken their backs and had sort of career ending and life-changing injuries and you try and block it out because if you go into whatever it is you're going to do with that in the back of your mind you're not going to be able to do it so everyone always says oh, i wish i had no fear well I've, I've got fear every racing driver that gets in the car has got fear you've just got to battle an ongoing mental battle to try and block that out and try and just focus on the things that are positive that that might not happen um, even in the face of losing friends and witnessing people come away with life-changing injuries you still find some resilience to get in a car and do it again knowing that that could be your it could be your turn i mean i, I really yeah don't well know. that's you, you you're really naive to it and i think the word that i'm looking for is control so you honestly believe that you're in control of your own destiny you're in control of the car every time you're in the car you're in in control of of what goes on around you but but that's just an illusion and essentially anything can happen at any time but but you have to center your focus around control so i've got fear i'm not going to jump out of an airplane because i don't feel that i'm in control if i'm jumping out of an airplane i'm scared of flying a lot of racing drivers are really poor passengers they're scared of flying and the reason is is they're not in control right the irony is is if they were in control of the plane then it wouldn't just be them that was scared of flying it'd be everyone else on the airplane <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the tell me about tell me about because you got so far in your career and then you had an accident tell me about the accident so 
I don't know if I've really processed what what happened. Um, I know what happened. You, you know, you you go through a journey of of a, there's a lot of anger afterwards because you made a mistake. You've brought this upon yourself. You're now in a position where you've almost ruined your career because of a, a mistake that you made. Um, so it, I still look back at it having not fully processed it and with a lot of frustration, but. You know, I made a mistake. I hit the wall. I was testing. I didn't think I'd hurt myself to the extent that I had. I'd had lots of injuries. I'd broken bones. I'd done various different things to my back before. And it wasn't until various different people kept on, you know, you go and have your scans, the x-rays, that kind of thing. And you've, <laughs> you've got all the screens that they stand behind because it's obviously radioactive. And you know, more and more people when they were looking at the results were coming along to look at the results. And the longer it went where I wasn't given that reassurance, normally, you know, it's like, okay, job done. Yeah, it looks like you've broken this, blah, blah, blah. So I, it wasn't an incident where you came off the track, hit the wall, and instantly you were so badly injured that you knew then and others knew you would not race again. It no, wasn't like that. No, Um I mean, I was in pain, don't get me wrong. And you, you go through the process of getting out or trying to get out of the car, not being able to get out of the car. And then the, the medical provisions always very, very good in, in that environment because it's high risk. But I genuinely thought I'd trapped a nerve or damaged a disc or, or something like that. I had, and this will mean nothing to you, a spondylolysis, undiagnosed, which is where 20% of your lumbar spine doesn't form properly so instead of having full bony union you have cartilage and bone and that was sort of l4 l5 s1 like 20 percent of the world's population have that so a huge percentage of the world's population have a spondylolisthesis and they might have localized pain aches there's loads of professional sports people who've got a spondylolisthesis mm -hmm. who spend time out because of the the wear and tear what happened with me is the bony union it crumbled away like a biscuit so essentially my lumbar spine was not connected with what they call as bony union it was it was a bilateral pars defect i think that's the technical mm. term that i'll test you that on, on later <laughs> <laughs> so i had to have sort of metal framework and screws put into my lumbar spine and then huge bone grafts from my pelvis to build around those. And if you've ever had a bone graft and they they sort of drilled really deep into my pelvis to, to get the soft bone, to give it the best possible ch chance. And, you know, it was, that was possibly the most painful thing that I've ever experienced in my life. And, and, and I'm not talking about when they do it, you're asleep, you know, that the, the operation's longer than a full heart bypass, but you, when you wake up in, in, in those days afterwards are just extraordinary. And that's the pain. What about the psychological? Because at this point you must have known or were starting to hear that you may never get in a car and race again in the way that you were before. How did you manage that? Well, do you know what? The surgeons, they say very little. So you're, you're seeking reassurance. You're looking for reassurance, broken loads of bones before. Surgeons say very little. It's not until you get in the hands of the rehab that you start to get a better picture as to what's going on. The 
the fact that I couldn't do anything. So I actually felt better before the operation <laughs> than I did afterwards. So I knew then that it, it was serious. I mean, I, I cannot begin to tell you how challenging those first or that first week was in terms of just the pain management and the, the lack of mobility. You know, I was lying totally flat. You have no, you can't do anything. You, you can't sit up, you can't look up, you can't move. You, you're totally immobile to give the bone graft the best possible chance of setting. And then you go through this phase of, of being totally immobile. And then when they, when they try and get you up, they use hoists, that kind of thing. Your blood pressure goes all over the place because you've been lying flat for so long. It's so alien to even sit up. It feels awful. You can't function. You have very limited movement or any movement on with your legs. You feel your legs. Everything works, but you're like a newborn baby because they've cut through your hip flexors, your glutes, everything to get to your pelvis. The, the, the intrusion to the local area in terms of the, the surgery itself you're you know just lifting like if we sit here and you can't see but if i just try and lift my knee up I, I couldn't do that so being able to 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 even stand or walk you're just such a long way away from from where you want to be and time kind of stands still so you you talk about the mental side i very quickly at the beginning just focused on the physical so it was it was like a gym session it was basically like right this is this is where we're at and i've got to to work hard to get out of it and for me that was just that came naturally that was not something I found too difficult because I used to train two hours in the morning two hours in the afternoon and and although I couldn't do anything it, it, I was still working hard you know I was doing all my bed exercises I was doing everything that they said I was still working hard but when you don't make any progress that's when it really starts to to hit home and you start to think well forget racing you know where where's my quality of life here what what am i going to be able to do you start asking questions that you don't get answers from you start making one step forward two steps back you start having all kinds of issues so if you're working on one area of your body you you then stumble into complications with another area and it, it was just a, a never-ending relentless road and that's where you're just so engrossed in your rehab journey and you spend so long in a sort of medical environment around medical professionals that you almost forget what the outside world's like how long was you sort of in 14 months 14, 14 months rehabilitation yeah and so, that was in a hospital or well, no you they try and get you home really quickly so i was only in hospital for a couple of months but you you you're then home and you know, you can't do anything. Like my mum was working. My mum's a single mum. She was working hard. I had people that were on a rotor to call in and help you. So you're, you're very vulnerable. You can't, you can't put your socks on. You can't wash yourself. You can't cook your food. I couldn't do the stairs. So once I was upstairs, I stayed upstairs. You couldn't go outside. You can't sleep. So the nights become days. It's really tough. And, you know, someone said to me now, could you do that? You'd say, no, you'll probably look at me going, well, I couldn't do that. When, when you're in a situation, you have no choice. No choice. So, mm. so, and you've experienced that, you mm. know, so, so you find a way, mm. but the impact and the effects of finding a way would really unravel further down the line. I really 
really hit rock bottom when I got better. When you got better. Mm. So that wasn't the tough. I mean, it was no. tough enough. Those yeah. 14 months you mm. talk about rehabilitating yeah. your physical mm. ability and no doubt your mental. But you're saying at the point where you were, and obviously you walked into this room and you're walking yeah. and moving around now. <laughs> yeah. So you overcame the physical disabilities yeah. Yeah. from from the crash. Yes. But then you say it got harder. What do you mean? So, like I said, I, I never really had an issue with the physical. It was only when I got to the mental side of things that I realized I hadn't paid any attention to to my mental health. I, I didn't really fully understand that journey. I was still a young adult. I'd gone through my younger years on a trajectory where things are going right and Yes, you have a few wobbles and you see one or two sports psychologists to to help you get yourself in the, in, in the right mindset for the battle ahead or the journey ahead. But, you know, you don't really fully understand what it is that, that the brain is and, and how impactful it can be in certainly the, the subconscious. And, you know, I, I got better and I hadn't had any form of normality for 14 months. I hadn't eaten in a restaurant. I hadn't been to the cinema. I hadn't seen friends. I hadn't focused on anything but this journey. And this journey was was coming to an end. And when it came to an end, I was almost stepping into a void of panic, total unknown. What am I gonna do now? I've got no qualifications. I've still got to get better. I've got nothing in my life you know I lost my relationship I'd moved back home I had no money but really the subconscious the sort of what they call the amygdala like the fire alarm in your your head every time I went out that was going off so I was walking into restaurants and and, and getting really panicky and sweating and being uncomfortable not being able to eat I became a great actor I was hiding it I just thought that this was a something like a fallback from what I'd been through and that I could battle my way through and that I splash my face with water, look myself in the mirror and say, it's going to be okay. And I suffered in silence. You know, we're going back 20 years where it's still a very testosterone fueled sport. That the, the, how, how old were you at the time when you just got through the physical? 23, 23. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, your life's unraveling and it's only just beginning and other people are off doing their thing now and you're you've lost your identity so I didn't know this at the time but you know on reflection again I had a big problem around control so I'd lost control so my whole life was very controlled everything was centered around the timetable everything was done with purpose you trained you ate certain things you drank certain things you omitted certain things you did certain things it was a super controlled environment and everything had a time everything was like a clockwork machine and now i was just in this chaotic environment where i, I just had i'd lost all of that mm. uh structure and all of that control and i'd lost my identity and i didn't you know i wasn't on this journey anymore i, I didn't know what i was going to do and the the loss of control the more i felt i was losing control i was trying to control things and I remember going to see someone because eventually I went to see my GP. And like I said, I became an incredible actor. I, I was losing friends. I was becoming unreliable. I remember getting to an airport and, and my manager had arranged for a test in America to go and 
test a car in America to, to maybe go out and, and look at IndyCar and various other things out there. And I got to the airport and I just burst into tears and, and I was just, I, I just couldn't get on the plane. I, I was just frozen with fear. It was the worst experience of my life. And I, and I got in a cab and I didn't know where I was going to go. You didn't take the flight? Didn't take the flight. I didn't know where I was going to go. I, I've never felt so lost in my life. I remember sitting in bumper to bumper traffic, commuter traffic around Heathrow. No one knew where I was. Nobody knew that I wasn't on that flight. I literally have never felt so lost in my life. I felt like I had the the world's weight of expectation on my shoulder. How am I going to explain to my parents that I'm not on the flight? How am I going to ex explain to my manager that I'm not on the flight? How am I going to explain to that team? You know, I, I thought my career was over. It's definitely over now. It was the worst sort of 24 hours of my life. And off the back of that, I just had to come clean and I just had to say, listen, this is where I'm at and this is what's happening. I've got no control over it. That was the hardest thing. If you're scared of spiders, you, you get exposed to a spider and you feel the fear and the panic and you've got to escape that situation. I was walking into environments that were totally normal to me that I'd enjoyed all my life. Love flying, love traveling, love eating in restaurants, love being social. And now I couldn't do it. And I didn't know why I couldn't do it. It wasn't like I was walking in, seeing something, being frightened of it. it my whole body was just shutting down based around my sort of subconscious, around this sort of amygdala, if you like, this alarm that was going off in my my head that was telling me to escape that situation, to, to get out of it. And it was so hard to go and see someone to open up and to tell them what I was feeling. Because I didn't really understand it. I thought I was going mad, for, for want of a better term. What, why, why, why did you find it so hard? I mean, the, the crash, the physical disabilities from the injuries... Why did you find it so hard to turn to your parents or other people and tell them what you were going through, you know, mentally? Weakness, vulnerability. So everything that you do in sport is is about being better than anyone else. It's about a right. show of resilience. It's about a show of strength. It's about you're in total control of where you're going. And is that because motorsport is a macho sport? I don't know because I, I don't, don't. I think it's a bit my personality as well right. because i'm very very driven i was very independent from a young age i never really shared anything with anyone if i was going to make a decision i was going to go right. and do it gotcha. you know i moved away from home to boarding school at a young age and and you know that autonomy and that sort of drive you you become very self-sufficient now i was having to rely on everyone and i didn't know how to this, you know you raised such a good point i didn't know how to rely on people i didn't know how to show weakness how to show vulnerability how to get out of the situation I was in. Everything that I'd done up until that stage was driven by me. So yes, you hit lots of speed bumps, but you find solutions, you find a way, you get it done. And this, I couldn't. And I remember going to see the doctor and he said, listen, you've got to let go. You've just got to let go of everything, lose control, stop trying to get on planes, stop trying to do anything. And I sort of looked at him as though, he had two heads and I, I thought, lose control. I, I am literally sliding down the, the face of a mountain here. If, if I just let go, I, I'm going to fall down to, to the bottom. It was just at the time, not what I needed to hear, but it was later on the, the best advice that, that I ever got. And I sort of poo-hooed it. And I remember going to Heathrow a couple of days after that to, to get on a plane and to go to to go to Paris just to test myself. I had no need or no purpose to be in Paris, but I thought 
what had happened, it's not something that I'm going to let happen. It's not something that I'm going to shy away from. It's I'm going to beat this. I'm going to not do it their way. I'm going to do it my way. And I'm going to go back to the airport. I'm going to get on a plane. I'm going to fly to Paris. And that's exactly what I did. And it all went wrong in Paris. <laughs> and then I had to ring everyone up and tell them I was in Paris. And, you know, my partner at the time, my parents like, well, what are you doing in Paris? You know, I thought you were going to the gym, that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I had to explain that. And and what I did was was by doing these things and ignoring help, I created learn what I call learned experiences. So if you put your hand in a lake and a crocodile bites it off, you're not going to put your hand in the lake again or your other hand. And what I was doing by relentlessly exposing myself to this trauma and trying to battle through and not take the advice was just exposing myself to, to experiences that that were then becoming negative for me. So so through association, I started to build up this barrier against traveling about airports because I was having so many traumatic experiences in these environments. So actually my resilience and my want to beat it became my biggest Achilles heel. Right. So that's why I mentioned personality mm. earlier. So it was a difficult time and just relaying it now, you know, it's, it's strange thinking about it. it. sounds odd when I when I talk about what I did or what I was thinking but 20 you, years on. Yeah, but as you talk about it, it it's obviously a long time re reflection. Yes. What, what did you do then? Because you obviously got to the point where you come to terms with being able to lose control, letting go of that clear fall into the bottom and then regaining control. What happened in between? It was a long journey. So it wasn't something that was overnight. It wasn't something that I could really control. So I had to slowly trust other people, slowly let other people in. And that journey didn't happen overnight. You know, I remember going to see somebody and you fill out the forms and, and, and you know, at the bottom of it, they say, look, if, if we certify you as to not be fit to leave, then, then you're not going to leave. And I remember reading that thinking, well, hang on, if I want to leave, I'm going to leave, you know, I'm not going to give you control. So I remember going in there, having read that, saying, yeah, everything's fine, you know, blot on the landscape. Yeah, this is it. And I, and, and I just acted my way through so many of the initial sessions. And I wasted years, you know, not just sessions. I wasted years slowly drip feeding control, slowly allowing people to see how bad it was, allowing people in. And the sort of eureka moment actually was I was invited by a, a friend of mine to a trusted event where it was athletes from all walks of life, from different sports. And what was said in that room stays in that room. You know, I won't break their confidence, but essentially what happened was all of them just spoke about the very things that I was feeling. They just spoke about their journey. Like I'm speaking to you now. And it was the most empowering moments and uh, the biggest eureka moment of my life. And it wasn't until I left that room, I thought, it's not just me. Uh, it gave me so much confidence and so much enthusiasm to actually just open up, to, to, to get back in touch with some of them and go, when you said that, I feel that, how did you deal with it? And you know, I didn't want to copy what they'd done, but I just wanted to speak to absolutely everyone. And for the first time, I didn't feel alone. For the first time, I didn't feel lost. And that peer support group was the bridge to getting the support that I needed. It was the bridge to actually trust the medical professions. And that's why I'm such a big advocate now for, for that peer-to-peer -peer support. You know, it was so powerful for me. What doors did it open in your life then? Once, once you 
discovered that listening to other people, taking advice, realizing that you couldn't do it alone, what doors started to open to change the direction of your life? For me, it was a like a, a sense of comfort. It was like a comfort blanket. It was a sense of, it's not just me. I looked at them and saw what they'd achieved off the back of their journeys. So the confidence off the back of that was was invaluable. And you suddenly go from being at rock bottom thinking I'm never going to get out of this. I can't talk to anyone. This is my lot. I'm stuck in this bubble and I'm never going to progress in life out. of. I've just got to somehow cope. That was what I, I wasn't living. I was coping. So I was just resigned to the fact that I was just going to have to cope like this for the rest of my life. And what I've been through and everything had shaped my life. And, and that was it. That was going to be my existence. Be happy with your lot and, and, and get on with it. And then when I went to see them, I realized there was light at the end of the tunnel that actually there was a way out of this, that, that I could be like one of them, that I could reignite my personality and, and my enthusiasm for life and, and, and go and live and, and, and do wonderful things, albeit not in the environment that, that essentially I was or on the pathway that, that I was on. So, yeah, it was the most powerful moment for me. And one I look back at now and think, you know, if I hadn't stumbled into that room, if I hadn't have been invited there, what would have happened? What did happen? What, what did you go on to do then? Because you could no longer do the sport that you loved, at yeah. least not get in a car and race around like you had before. You'd now got past the psychological and the physical, or at least, you, you know, you limited its impact on your existence and being. So what did you do? Because now you're a presenter of many kinds. Yeah. Is that what happened straight away? Or did you try something else around painting and decorating or something? Do you know what? I did try a, a proper job, what I call a proper job. And it was too much like hard work. And no, I I, um, I went back to, to, to what I knew. It gave me the confidence to actually talk about my journey. So to be me again. It gave me an identity, so it, it might not have been right at the beginning what I wanted to be my identity, but but it gave me that, it galvanized my sort of want to, to talk about what I'd been through and who I was and start off on, on my new journey. And that journey was a, a broadcasting journey. I was swapping the steering wheel for a microphone. No one teaches you how to do it. <laughs> You don't know if you're any good and you sink or swim at the beginning and you just get gradually better day by day, chipping away at it. People tell you when you've done a bad job, but never when you've done a good job. So true. And um, and that was my journey. And, and actually, you know, I've not looked back since then. And the very fact that I'm here now talking about what I've been through, that is a legacy of of having that initial experience where I, where I heard other people talking about what they've been through. And so you wanted to share your experience yeah, to inspire others to come through. Even now, you know, I'll give you an example. I, I was on a, a Zoom call not so long ago and we were talking about human performance and various other things. And, and I, I actually brought into the conversation what it was that had got my interest, why I'm interested in human beings. So I'm really interested in human beings because of what I went through. How can I go from being on, you know, so many flights a, a year to, to being at the top of a sport to, to not being able to walk into a restaurant? You know, how does that happen? The, the power of the mind. So I'm really interested in the sort of what I call the human under the performer. I was talking about that and you never know who's on a Zoom call. You know, there's lots of people tune in and that kind of thing. And I got an email three days later from a serving military officer 
from an from the US who just got in touch to say, listen, what you said, that's me. I can't get in my car. I had to sell my car because it had a sunroof and I couldn't go anywhere without looking out sunroof to see who was on rooftops, that kind of stuff. I, I can't go into my local village to get a car. I can't do the things that I want to do that I enjoy doing. That's me. And now we're really good friends. We talk all the time. So if I can just help one person by telling my story, that's the the, the eureka moment I had. And, and if other people hadn't been kind enough to trust the space and to share their story, then I wouldn't have made the steps forward that, that I've made. So I now enjoy talking about my story and I feel passionate about it. And if I can help just one person, then then I will. And you know, I'm really happy in my life. I got married last year. I have a wonderful, yeah, thank you. I have a wonderful career. And I've got loads of people around me that that know and understand the situation and and and, and really support me. So, you know, I couldn't ask for more. You talk about a, a lot of it was about losing control, yeah. but you had to lose control in order to get control of your life again. Definitely. Where, where are you with that that now? Because I, I suspect that somebody who has that embedded in their personality from a very young age, even though you had to release control, where are you with control now? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So I always say being comfortable with the unknown is is something that's really important and, and not trying to overthink things. And so I'm in, a, I'm in a good space. I still love routine and I love writing notes and that will be the backbone of who I am for the rest of my life. And that sporting, you know, going to boarding school into a sports environment where it's about getting up and going. So every morning I get up and go, I'm out the house. Even if I've got nothing to do, I'm out the house. I want to speak to people. I want to see people. I want to get my senses going. And I love that routine. The to-do notes, as I said, will stay there. But for, for the rest of what it is that I do, I'm very focused on enjoying the journey. So one of the biggest regrets and, and one of the stories that came out of that room, actually, with those athletes was everyone forgot to enjoy their careers and and me too. So I'm determined to to just enjoy what it is that I do. So I'll go and do huge events, you know, live on Sky Sports or whatever it is, you know, the Indy 500. If I'm hosting the studio, it's one of the, the most watched motorsport events anywhere in the world. And it's easy to, to sweat the small detail. It's easy to overthink it. It's easy to tighten up and not enjoy it. And you know, my remit is to be comfortable with the unknown and actually to enjoy it. If this is the last gig that I do, or if I'm going to be bad, I'm going to be bad doing it my way and I'm going to enjoy it. And, you know, I try and take that into absolutely everything that I do now. It's great. It's great to hear that you've overcome the psychological barriers that prevented you from progressing. What about the physical? Because you, you were obviously, you talked about the intrusive surgeries that you went, what, what, what's that left? What's the legacy of that? Because well, Look how I'm sat now. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, or, or when I like rotate around. Well, you think it's yeah, obvious, but yeah. it's not. For, no. you, you know, you look like yeah. a very handsome, yeah. young, healthy, oh, fit looking yeah. guy, yeah. but there are things going on inside that restrict yeah. your abilities. What are they? So I, <laughs> there's a lot of things I can't do. And it's about focusing on the things that you can do. And if you focus on the things that you can do and you have that can-do attitude, then it's amazing what you can do. Now, I didn't have that. So part and parcel of the anxiety and the restriction at the beginning was I just couldn't do anything. So you become like you're bubble wrapped. So just walking into the local supermarket, 
at the beginning, you're frightened of people because you, if you stub your toe or you do anything, it's just agony. So if someone comes near you or bangs you at a trolley or whatever, it's agony. You know, I couldn't even lift up a cup of tea because of the muscles that you use everything. Just lifting up a cup of tea was hurting the area. So you're so weak at the beginning and vulnerable that just any type of exposure or anyone around you, you just fear it. And so you you become very fearful because of the, the state that you're in and the prolonged period of time that you're in it. So yeah, I say now it's a can-do attitude and let's go out there and do it and, and, and bloody, bloody, blur. But I didn't have that for so long. And I've had to almost coach that into myself and go from one extreme to another. So you, otherwise I just wouldn't have made the step. So if I get my wife will talk to you about one of the first dates we did. We we went on mountain biking and I said, look, look, watch this. So, so there, there was this massive grass hill. So we had to get from the top to the bottom, basically. And and I, 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 I did it in the fastest possible way. And I hit at the bottom. There was just no way that I was going to be able to slow down. The grass was wet. And then uh, long story short, I just came off the bike and, and damaged my shoulder and did all kinds of different things. And, you know, I've, I've had stress fractures from playing volleyball where I've hyperextended, where the metals hit the bone and, you know, other, other things. But you, you've got to try and just accept that those things might happen and not lose your identity. My identity has always been to to grab the bull by the horns and, and to, to love speed, to love adrenaline. I love roller coasters. I love anything with an engine. I love going fast. So try and do that as much as possible jet skiing's another thing you know jet skiing's great but if you hit the wave or you come down or you 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 compress your spine in in the wrong uh in the wrong way you're going to have uh, a big issue i went offshore power boating where if you're you know they beat their in, insides up so much that they will urinate blood their kidneys get such a beating so they're like well you know have you had any back surgery that kind of stuff and I, and I said well I have and they said well you just can't go and I was like I am going <laughs> so you go out and you do that and you hit the first ferry wake and the compression you just think crikey am I okay and then you're like yeah I think I'm okay you know and it's just trying to break down those barriers and, and know that you are gonna test yourself and it it might be a bit restrictive but you can't just live in that bubble so i've had to really it's taken me about 10 years to try and get into that space but you know i do get fearful when it hurts and there's things that go on in my life that maybe if it happened to you now or you woke up with the pain that i've got then even now the pain you have even now we're yeah sometimes about. sometimes right. just be like just facet joint irritation and, right. and, and various other things and you know i've got bulges on the discs like narrowing of the nerve canals that kind right. of stuff so stuff that you learn to live with yeah T tell me about about your career though because you 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 like you say you swapped the steering wheel for a <laughs> microphone yeah tell me a little bit about what what you do as a career in terms of radio broadcasting so i work across formula one last year i head up sky sports f1's indycar coverage so indycar is like the american formula one i absolutely love indycar because the way the americans do sport is is wonderful it's not for everyone but the entertainment side of things you know we you might have watched the super bowl mm. or you watch the big boxing bouts in vegas or whatever it is they they just do entertainment and sport they mm. marry the two mm. together so mm. so well so i love i love that and you know that'll be at the forefront of what i do this year the indycar season kicks off on sky next weekend 
that's from Florida. And, you know, I will work across other things. I was doing Formula One power boating this weekend. I'll be doing Le Mans. I'll be doing Formula E, which is the new American Formula One. So I do that for discovering Eurosports. I do a whole host of work on that sort of Discovery Plus platform and a bit of well feed stuff. So try and be as busy as possible. Try and I always say I haven't had a proper job yet. So I'm 41. <laughs> if I can keep going without having a proper job, then uh, or, you know, my luck's going to run out one day. But so far, so good if I can keep that going. And we met at, yeah. at the clink. So we've talked about your sort of career and, and how you overcame the, the traumas that you experienced through that, your broadcaster. But you also have an interest in criminal justice because that's how we met in a prison in Brixton. Although it wasn't in the prison, it was in the prison. But where did that come from? Yeah, so it's a good question. With my goldmine upbringing, which is frustrated me no end, that I, I just didn't know enough about other areas of society. I didn't know about the criminal justice system. I knew nothing about the police up until about nine years ago. I was invited out with the police. And what I saw, has that shift has stayed with me now to this day. So... What did you see? People having fights with samurai swords and arterial bleeds and people smashing their banisters down at two in the afternoon and, you know, dads and sons fighting each other on a Thursday afternoon. I did six shifts and I cannot begin to tell you the the sort of chaos, that chaotic space. I, it, it was just totally alien. I came from a loving family and... I've never seen anything like that. So the Samurai Swords was a Sunday lunch. The the Thursday afternoon where the the whole family are fighting each other with wooden sticks in this tiny little flat. And this was you hanging out with the police? With the police. And then I met this 16-year-old who'd been hit off his moped trying to get away. And he basically had drugs on him, had money on him, had phones on him. He's then stripped of those phones, the drugs, the money, put into the, processed into the criminal justice system. And because he's a juvenile, he's not kept in custody. His mum didn't want to come and see him, so he was all alone. We queued up on the custody ramp for ages. And he's now, it's a safeguarding issue. He's now more vulnerable when he's let out than he was when he went in. Because now, whoever he's carrying those drugs for, that money, those phones for, and now I'm going to want to speak to that individual and find out where it all is. And if he hasn't got it, which he hasn't, he's going to be in real trouble. So it's a huge safeguarding issue. So the sort of, I don't know, I, I, I battle through with my own thoughts as to what is right and what is wrong. Because when you're brought up, you're brought up to go, right, these are the rules, don't break them. And we live in a society now where they're still talking about tough justice, where, you know, lock away the key, that kind of stuff. And actually, if you go back to our conversation about the chaotic space that people are born and brought up in, some are in care, some are being trafficked and exploited into criminality. Kids are entering the criminal justice system, having never, ever had an opportunity to make the right decision. And now they're going to be punished for it. And when they are punished for it, they're then even more at risk when they're released. It's like a never-ending cycle of 
chaos and trauma for them. And I use that word chaos a lot because it is just so chaotic. Mm. I couldn't believe it. So that's my journey. I've stuck at it. When I met that 16-year-old, I wanted to do something about it. I became an ambassador for Divert London, who are doing wonderful things with young adults and what kids. What is Divert? Just tell me what Divert yeah, is. Yeah, so Divert is early intervention. So this is a public health matter for me. And we need to try and row up the river because early intervention is absolutely crucial. So it's almost too late when kids are coming into custody. So we need to get young adults or children who are NFA, no further action or in and around criminal behaviors or activities and get them talking to custody intervention coaches. So a custody intervention coach is somebody who walks into that environment where somebody is in custody and you know what that feels like. It's I don't, but it must be a very, very difficult and uh, emotive experience. And it's very solitary. So if you've got somebody there reaching in to try and help you with some early intervention so we can get somebody out of police custody into a suit and down to uh, a job interview or whatever it is within within a period of, of days, you know, with sometimes even hours. And that for me is really, really important because you, you can't just process these individuals into a system and come and revisit them nine, 10, 12 months later. So that's Divert London. And it's now moved out to different custodies. So I think it's in Lancashire, it was in Thames Valley for a bit. But it's working with vulnerable people that are in and around the criminal justice system that want to make changes to the, to their lives and or want to to try and break that cycle of coercion and and uh, control that that might have led to them being in that environment. Why do you think that's important? I think that's important because for some of them, like that sixteen year old on the custody ramp, it, he didn't have any trusted individuals to speak to. You know, when he rang his mum, she didn't want to know. You know, you've got a child who is in, and it was a, all the way across London, a foreign custody suite in terms of his neighbourhood, and the parents don't want to know. The police have limited interaction because the police, they have a purpose and there's a process, whereas I'm just there wanting to talk to a fellow human being. I, I just see a fellow human being there. I see a vulnerable child. I see somebody that once we got talking had a huge amount of character and personality, but hadn't got anybody to to trust or anybody to reach out to or anybody to talk to. You know, he may or may not, you know, I'm hypothesizing here, but but I've done a lot of work around the lives of these children or young adults before they get into these situations. You know, the only time he's got to show vulnerability and or speak out is in this trusted space here. The only time he's away from the environment that is driving him into the criminal justice system or bad decisions is, is, is that space. And the custody intervention coaches are normally young adults themselves who have trodden this pathway, who feel passionately about helping others because they got the help that they needed and they're, they have wonderful stories and they're the most inspirational, loving, caring people who've got so much to give. And they're now, because of 
their pathway able to give back and they they do invaluable work incredible work do you know what's really interesting is most people who listen to this may themselves have been caught up in the criminal justice system i know someone who 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 has what, what 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 do you advocate for someone like yourself who went out with the police witnessed things that you know impacted you that you wanted to do something became an ambassador of divert and this amazing project and i know because i've been involved in it to some extent but those who don't connect with the criminal justice sisters or vulnerable people like you've just described what value does someone like yourself who admits that you've had no connection with that world until it impacted you on the way that it has what would your i say message be to other people who might be listening to this who think i'm so far removed from that i can't yeah. add value but they obviously can because the way you articulate it, the way that you see the vulnerability in these kids, you don't just dismiss them no. as 16-year-old bad kids who got caught with drugs and they deserve what they get. That's not what you're advocating. You recognize the wrong that they were doing, but not through any fault of their own. What value do you add in people like you, yourself, Tom? I think for me, it's a friendly set of ears. It's about being curious. So many of these young adults or kids, no one's ever really been curious around them. No one's ever asked them anything. No one's ever really cared. No one's sat and listened. And that's all I can do. I don't have real life experience. I can't empathize with, with what's happened. But I do have my life experience. I do have my connections. I can work hard on the uh the pathways if you like so divert london is only as strong as the the pathways it it creates you can't walk into someone's life say listen we're going to give you an opportunity here or we're going to create an opportunity and then there not be an opportunity mm. <laughs> so mm. you've you've got to to have people that can open up doors that can talk to corporates that can work with boardrooms if you like on their social responsibility strategies and actually be a voice so when i go and talk about this on my social media or i go into motorsport environments you know there's some people that are like right what's he harping on about now and just totally switch off but there's other people that that have that curiosity that professional curiosity just to hear me out to listen and then are fascinated by the story so many people come up to me and go i didn't know that until you tweeted about that or i watched your video or you spoke about that and that then drives their professional curiosity to, to go down their journey don't copy my journey but take that curiosity take that interest and as we get a bit older some people do want to give back you know i took i did a lot of giving i did a lot of taking sorry mm. in my early life my whole life was centered around taking and it was all about me now on my journey i want to give back and i've got a life story i've got a whole host of connections and i've got a curiosity and a compassion to other people that essentially i want to give something back and you know these these individuals might have done certain things and divert doesn't get in the way of the criminal justice system and or whatever justice is served but we're there for those individuals whether or not they are released or you know put into to custody whatever it is or or they're serving time will be there when when they come out yeah it's so interesting because you talk about you know giving a voice to the voiceless which is what i'm all about and someone like yourself and others like you who have had no connection with the criminal justice system you know do you know get the attention of people 
who you talk about, you know, who work in the corporates, who have no connection with this whatsoever, and you advocating on behalf of these most vulnerable children or individuals, um, different people listen, different people can, can take action. One more for me. What does second chance mean to you? Because listening to your various experiences in, in life, there must have been, I don't know whether you would, you know, describe it as a second chance, but it sounds like you've been through many different, you know, the roller coaster of your own personal journey, and then to come at the end and want to give back to other people. There are plenty of second chance mm-hmm. curves in there. But what does the word second chance in life mean to you or for others, Tom? So I think having, I don't even think it's a second chance. I think it's second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven. I, I, you know, I look back at my early years and when I made a mistake, I had a golden parachute and I was protected by an, an establishment, an environment. It's very difficult to, to get expelled from the schools that I went to. And on top of that, I had parents with connections. You know, th- there's that golden parachute the whole time. So I've made lots of mistakes. There's, there's no two ways about that. And I've always had the opportunity to bounce back and learn from that. You're only stupid if you make the same mistake twice is, is the term. Um, I think that we all deserve that trusted space, that that opportunity to 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 reflect on whatever it is that we've done or have that, you know, for individuals that, that are actually not in that space by choice, that we, we certainly need to step in and, and allow those individuals to to have more than a second chance because they're they're growing, they're learning, they're reflecting. It's really powerful. It's really important for me. It's something that I'm passionate about. I think we live in a society now that's so judgmental. Everyone's to blame. We've got to blame someone and we've got to cancel them out. Or if you make one mistake, you, you know, you, you, you're the very worst of society or humanity. And I think that is is actually toxic. I think we need to live in a in a growth environment where we where we help people along, where we teach people, where we are compassionate to people where we care for people because I think without that you have this society where people are so frightened to to be honest to to reach out to talk about whatever it is that they've done and that for me is not healthy are you are you still as ambitious as you was when you were a kid when you were driven you're not no you're not you Um, kind of reach where you need to get to and you're content with that part of life do you remember I said I want to enjoy what it is that I'm doing. So I will always have that to-do list. I will always have that drive. I will always send emails. I'll always network. I'll always try and create opportunity, but it's not what makes me tick. What makes me tick is is trying to enjoy what it is that I have. I have. And, you know, there's a tweet I sent this morning where, it's, where it says happiness is not success, but success is happiness kind of thing. And And, and what I'm trying to constantly battle with with myself and help other people is is to to just sometimes reflect enjoy what it is that you do cherish what you have and if you're fortunate enough to have any more then great but actually live in the present because too often as human beings we're anxious about what comes next when we achieve something we've got to achieve something else we're sad about what's happened in the past you know trying to get our heads into that sort of present if you like is is really hard so and i'm no different so i will constantly battle with myself and leave myself messages and talk about being in the present and just being happy with what i've got because that's essentially what sort of underpins your well-being 
did you ever get back in a car? I did, yes. And I just yeah, knew yeah. it. I just yeah. knew you yeah, would I say did. yes. Yeah. I knew it wasn't the end where you yeah. kind of gone yeah. through this experience. Yeah. So you got back in a car, yeah. didn't compete, but you, you nah, had another I've go. I've been back in a car. And was twice. that just so that you could, like you did with the aeroplane, prove to yourself that... Prove to myself. Why, why was that necessary? It's just closure for me to know I can, to know I did. I didn't tell my mum or my wife. Um, they know now. They know now. <laughs> It's just a little bit about me, isn't it? And and that's what makes me tick. Just I need to sometimes put things to bed. I really enjoyed it, but I it was like a roller coaster. Once I've done it, I'm going to go and do another one. I'm not going to queue up and do the same one twice. And and that for me was a, a great, great message to know that that part of my life is shut and that I love what it is that I do now. And I don't have any burning desire to, to relentlessly. Yeah. You know, if someone said, you want to drive tomorrow, it, it, it's great. But I don't lie awake at night thinking I want to drive again and again and again. You know, I love what I have now. That's the message. And and I genuinely do. Tom, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for coming in and talking to me and sharing your story. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Second Chance Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated and we couldn't have produced this podcast without you. You can find the YouTube video of this interview on our channel at Second Chance Podcast, where you can also subscribe and watch more interviews with our guests. Share our episode with your friends, family and colleagues and follow us on YouTube and your preferred podcast platforms for updates on new episodes. Your feedback is crucial to the growth of our podcast. Please rate and review our episodes and let us know your thoughts in the comments section. We pride ourselves on producing high quality content and our team works tirelessly to achieve this. Audio editing is done by Audio Avalanche. Original music is by J-Row Productions. Cover design is by Studio Minerva and Sophie Warner is our social media editor. Kabiolotto handles video editing. Kim Cullicut at Second Chance Podcast produced this episode and I'm your host, Raphael Rowe. Thank you for listening.